If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! Yeah! It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. So, uh, coming up on the show, and you know, people are already talking about this. Wow, you know, like, the, are we going to get skiing? Are we going to do any snowshoeing? Are we going to do any dog sledding over the court? No! <laughs> It certainly looks like, uh, for most of Canada, it's a green Christmas, and El Nino is uh, obviously a cyclical thing that comes around every seven years, I believe. I don't know. Hey, you know what? That's why we'll bring in Anthony Farnell, uh, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, and explain what El Nino is all about. Don't worry. It's coming. It's just going to be a little later. Uh, just in time for the new year, of course. Uh, also, new Angus Reid polling out. You know how I love the polling and where Canadians' heads are at. We're going to talk about that, especially when it comes uh, into anti-Semitism and Islamophobia uh, and, and what we're seeing going on with the Israel and Hamas conflict, uh, the divisions it's caused, uh, caused across the country, and uh, the follow-up from that. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also... I'm going to bring uh, Lorraine Sommerfeld back in, a columnist with Driving.ca and The Spectator, and talk more and more about uh, electric vehicles. And it really seems that uh, certainly the trend for the next little while anyway is hybrids. And the sales of uh, hybrids continue to really increase. Uh, well, where electric vehicles, there's still some sort of concern uh, here or there. So, again, you know, a transitional situation, uh, but still uh, one that obviously uh, Canadians are moving towards and can afford is perhaps, you know, uh, instead of a complete uh, EV. We'll talk about that coming up a, a little later on. Also, you know, we talk about this because, like, this is, uh, you know, I still got a couple of things I got to go out and do. And, you know, I shouldn't have, you know, I had a really good start. And then I thought, you know, uh, you know, I can wait. And now it's going to be, you know, you got to put on the helmet and the, and the elbow pads to get out there. It's just going to be, it's just going to be hell in the malls. <laughs> Some of you may not look at it that way, but from my perspective. Anyway, uh, so, um, you know, you hear about Cyber Monday and in Black Friday and uh, what is Super Saturday? Well, Super Saturday is the Saturday before, or the last Saturday before Christmas. So fit that one into your calendar as well. So uh, I'm convinced I have to get the heck out of Dodge before Super Saturday. I got to get in and out sometime tonight and or tomorrow, and 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 you know avoid the Super Saturday. But we'll tell you all about it and what it means. And it's been sort of an unusual year in retail, uh, in the sense that obviously people are are cutting back, they're feeling the pinch. And it's obviously uh, changed the way uh, that you are shopping and such. So uh, different times, different sales, uh, where you'll give up on selection, you could end up getting a really good sale between now and uh, and Christmas. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, this was pretty disturbing. Uh, The leader of Hamas has issued a thank you uh, to Canada uh, for uh, calling for the ceasefire in Gaza which, um, you know, sounds like it's a great thing, but 
I'm not sure anybody's told the prime minister that Hamas is not interested in a two or his two state solution. So uh, it's going to be fascinating where this goes moving forward. Again, uh, many just uh, declined or opt out or didn't say anything um, because obviously a ceasefire and something that uh, will stop the killing of lives is something that obviously everybody is pushing towards. However, it's all in the wording and how you present yourself on the world stage. And when you have the leader of a terrorist organization such as Hamas uh, thanking uh, the prime minister as well as Australia and New Zealand uh, for their position, it's, uh, you know, where do you go with that? Uh, Anyway, that's where we are. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, on that note, there are uh, key allies and highly uh, high level diplomacy uh, going on behind the scenes trying to get some sort of solution uh, with all of this. And that is going on now as well. Also, uh, Canada and the U.S. too slow in adapting to the security uh, threats, uh, especially in the uh, far north, according to the outgoing chief of NORAD. We're going to talk about that as well. Christian Leprec is going to be joining us and always an expert on these sorts of issues. And we're going to talk about Canada's new 988 hotline. And uh, this has been out uh, for a little over a week or so, but it's a new service that gives people access to suicide prevention assistance uh, over the phone. So, you know, when you think about it, because there's all sorts of crisis lines or, or what have you, um, you know, in various areas, but this sort of brings it all under one umbrella and with one number, which, you know, like 911 is something that really stands out. So, uh, great idea, a long time coming, it appears, but we'll talk about that, uh, as well. And Radley going to be joining us at the end of the show. If you're looking outside, uh, or if you are outside or running back and forth, uh, it's cool out there. It's cold. Um, and normally that means snow. But uh, also with something called El Nino, uh, later on in the week, temperatures are going to continue to rise. So uh, I guess if you don't have it now, you ain't going to get it as far as a white Christmas. Let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist, Global News, with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well. And uh, yeah, this green, brown, white Christmas uh, percentages (laughs) is taking up a lot of my week. But uh, for many Canadians... It is a a disappointing couple of days now that we're getting close to Christmas. And yeah, we have a pretty good idea of what's uh, going on, at least in the medium term. So uh, I was thinking about that as I was bringing you on, Anthony. How many times this week people have asked you the question, is it going to be a white Christmas? I mean, you must get it all the time. (laughs) Yeah, between uh, forecast for individual days wedding days in the summer this is kind of a close (laughs) second and people ask in the beginning of december and even though it's a mild month you can't really specify what's going to happen because all it takes is that one storm right before christmas to really change things whether it's rain or snow and in this case there's no storm coming so good news for travelers but yeah what you see out your window is kind of what you get uh, for monday morning and, you know, this time last year, just a couple of days before Christmas, we got blasted. And then I think by New Year's, we had rain. So uh, obviously a very unpredictable or tough to predict month. What is uh, first of all, talk about El Nino, how this is influencing what we're experiencing. Yeah, so we're uh, dealing with an El Nino that is in the Pacific Ocean, closer to the equator, uh, just off of Central America and South America. You have warmer than normal waters and it has something to do with the trade winds and less upwelling off the coast 
Uh, and that actually influences the jet stream and the weather patterns across the entire planet. And for much of Canada, that is a sign that it's going to be generally a mild winter and generally a very warm December compared to average. And that's definitely what we've seen. And it really uh, shows itself over the next week to 10 days heading through the holidays. How often do we get a El Nino? It happens, I'd say, every three or four years. So we are coming off of three straight years of La Nina, which is basically the opposite, cool water right. in that same part of the Pacific. Uh, and that was unusual. We very rarely have seen three years straight of the same uh, cycle. And now we're switching to El Nino. Sometimes it's neutral and there's no real signal coming from there at all. But uh, El Nino can cause a lot of disruption weather-wise uh, everywhere from Australia to the flooding rains possible in, in Brazil and, and uh, parts of Central America. And for us, less snow and maybe more ice storms, which is something uh, that we may have to worry about once the cold air finally arrives, which I think is happening in January. Now, once it does get here, uh, Anthony, does it then become a normal winter or is it still, as you're saying, uh, a bit more freezing rain, perhaps as temperatures stay on the warmer side? And then perhaps would that assume a, an early spring? Well, the early spring has been uh, it's been tough to get lately. The mild Decembers are almost uh, a certainty. I think eight yeah. out of the last 10 Decembers have been milder than normal. So that's something that uh, is a trend, a pattern that we are, are hopping on. Uh, as far as Aprils go, we've been getting these late snowstorms. We've been getting some cold. So I don't know if that's the case. I, I do see a lot of back and forth, very similar to last year. Uh, and that's not great news for backyard rinks, for the Rideau Canal, for those mm. that are skiers or boarders. Uh, there is going to be some winter. I do see uh, a several week stretch in January or and February, but uh, overall less snow and, and less cold than we're used to up here. So maybe it's easier to say who will get a white Christmas this year, Anthony. The mountains in BC. So you go up in <laughs> elevation in the Rockies and that's about it. What's incredible is places like um, Saskatoon, Regina, even Winnipeg may have some leftover snow, but they have a 98% chance of getting a white Christmas. So 98 out of 100 years, uh, there's snow on the ground. And this year may be the exception. Montreal, green Christmas, Ottawa, uh, even Quebec City may have no snow. And the Maritimes are all included in that. So uh, if, if I were to pick the top 10 population centers across Canada, I think they're all green this year. So that is uh, incredible to see. And I've, I've never seen that in, in my time here as a meteorologist. So what is it looking like for uh, now through the uh, Christmas uh, through uh, Southern Ontario? What can we expect? I guess once this cold snap ends, it starts to warm up again. Yeah, you mentioned the cold and that really is being compounded today by those northeast winds gusting to 40. And, and it's just a, kind of a chill when you're not used to it. <laughs> and we're certainly not, but it is going to warm up. That wind flow switches around. We start to see some showers. That's rain on Saturday uh, and then overcast for Christmas Eve and, and Christmas Day. Uh, but getting up to about eight or nine degrees by that point, which is way above seasonal. Mm. And it stays mild throughout uh, the entire holiday week. And El winter. Nino, I, I, I want to mention just quickly before we wrap that. Yep. Uh, um, it's more than El Nino. I, I'm definitely thinking there's a climate perspective here, global warming. Yeah. Uh, it's all playing a role together.
And the today, winter arrives later tonight. Is this the longest day of the year or is tomorrow? Or sorry, the shortest day of the year? Shortest, shortest yeah. Shortest amount of daylight. Uh, I. That's a good question. I think it's within a half second, <laughs> whether it's today or tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, 1027 p.m. officially the winter solstice. And uh, we've been gaining daylight for our sunset already now for a few days. It's the sunrise that continues to get a little later uh, right up until Christmas. So uh, I'm enjoying every half second that we gain from, <laughs> from here on out. That's right. Everything counts. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. Most of Canada, pretty much all the major centers, Green Christmas. Anthony, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks. You too. You don't have to listen or look very hard to find. Uh, there's a lot of division in this country of late, and especially with the uh, Hamas in, uh, and Israeli war that is going on. Uh, a recent poll by Angus Reid on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia found that across the country, the vast majority of people agree that they are problems that are rising, and that is the anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim views. To talk more about all of this, John Rowe, Research Associate with Angus Reid, and here now. John, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I hope you're well, too, Scott. Uh, you know, we, we've we been uh, obviously seeing a lot of this in front of us on, on news services and such and, and what has happened since October 7th. Are these numbers increasing as a result of what has happened on October 7th when Hamas uh, invaded Israel? Or is was this a trend growing prior to all of that? I think the, uh, the the recent war and the events kind of since October 7th, I think I've probably played like a significant role kind of in increasing uh, what people are kind of seeing out there and seeing with these views. I, obviously, kind of with the, with the reports from police and from uh, the different communities, they're saying that this is happening a lot more. They're seeing a lot more graffiti and vandalism kind of related to that and also kind of reports of violence as well as that uh, that terrorist plot that uh, was broken up by the mm. RCMP uh, resulting in a charge against uh, Ottawa teenagers. So it, from from our data, I think what we're seeing is that people are, are, are noticing these things and saying that they're a problem, though there is a bit of a disagreement among Canadians as to how, how severe the problem is, depending on uh, how, how old Canadians are and, uh, and age and gender and things like that. Talk about the severity and how that differs depending on who you ask. Yeah, so we uh, we asked both kind of whether or not people saw anti-Semitism or anti-Muslim hatred as a, as a problem or an issue in the country, uh, and it's about fifty three percent of Canadians say that anti-Muslim hatred is a problem, but one among many others, and twenty two percent say it's a major problem. Uh, with anti-Semitism, it's fifty two percent say it's a problem among others, and twenty six percent say it's a major problem. Uh, then when it kind of comes to age and gender, it's older Canadians are more likely to say that anti-Semitism is a major problem, uh, whereas kind of the inverse for uh, anti-Muslim hatred. It's younger Canadians that are more likely to say it's a problem, and it's women more than men that say it's a major problem. How do you explain that? Well, I think part of it is perhaps maybe... I think it kind of it maybe lies with how people's sympathies are. What we, what we found was uh, when we asked kind of questions about uh, the, the war as it kind of broke out and where Canadians feel... Uh, they have kind of more sympathies towards it's younger Canadians and women are kind of more likely to have sympathi sympathies toward the Palestinian side and older Canadians are kind of more sympathies and have sympathies towards the, the Israeli side in this conflict. So I think perhaps that might kind of explains part of it. Uh, and I think it's maybe 
maybe it's kind of as well like a, a bit of a historical thing where older Canadians are kind of more likely to have seen kind of uh, anti-Semitism and or heard of anti-Semitism kind of from 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 their parents and like older older generations that are, are more likely to have seen it as a problem before. Um, that was my next point, John. Is it, you were talking about the differences in the the way older demographics view this? Is it could it be because older demographics have perhaps seen this before? They've they've seen this play out. Obviously, whether it's you know uh, memories, histories of World War II, post conflict, and such. How much does that play into this? I, I think that has to play a significant role, and I, I it's. You see it like in that kind of previous data I mentioned where it's older Canadians are kind of more likely to uh, to have sympathies with the Israelis in, the, in this conflict, in this war. Uh, and so they have that kind of experience and that knowledge of seeing that previously. And so I think that kind of reminds them of um, what they've seen in the past and what, what they've kind of they know of, has happened in the past. At the same time, uh, we've done kind of previous studies about uh, the problem of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim Prejudice, and I, I think that is has been and kind of consistently been an issue uh, in this country that we've seen uh, that perhaps maybe doesn't get as much attention, but is something that has also been a problem with this that we've seen in this country. Uh, do you do you think Canadians are quick to paint this as one side versus another, whichever side you pick? Yeah, you know, for example, Palestinians against Israel Israelis, this religion against that religion, left versus right. As opposed to say democracy and freedom versus uh, authoritarianism and terrorism. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult, I think, to 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 kind of I guess fully understand from that. That's a, we didn't quite look at it from from the kind of those angles. Um, I think it it is something where it does seem people do kind of draw. Maybe they kind of try to split the thing into two sides. Uh, but at the same time, from from their previous study, uh, not this most recently released data, we did find that a lot of Canadians did have sympathies with both sides, and especially with the people, mm -hmm. uh, the civilians kind of involved in these conflicts. There's quite a bit of sympathy towards them on both sides. Uh, so I, I think there is maybe a bit of polarization that occurs and that people do seem to be kind of choosing sides, uh, especially when it comes to what you've seen from these protests that have happened across the country as, since this contract has bro broken out. But there does seem to be quite a few Canadians as well that see I guess that there are people kind of involved on both sides, and especially when it comes to civilians and non-combatants, that uh, that they have a lot of sympathy towards. Uh, what do you think this means now that you've seen this sort of of consciousness about this, perhaps more than we've seen in a long time? Does does this go back? Does trust come back? Where where do, where does this go? I, I think it's a, it's an interesting well, one of the interesting trends that we uh, pulled out of this study was uh, we looked at a, a question that we had asked uh, in 2017 for the first time, which was about whether or not uh, how Canadians would describe the overall contribution of religion and faith in in Canada and Canadian society today. Mm. And it, what that is kind of trending towards is that people are looking at religion kind of more negatively and having a more negative impact than they have in the past. So in 2017, it, uh, it was about two in five Canadians said that most uh, religions and faith communities were making good contributions or more good than bad. And about 14% said uh, it was more bad than good. Uh, and that number has kind of shrank on the good side and grown on the bad side. So it does maybe perhaps this conflict coming into it with somewhat, uh, I guess, both kind of very religious sides on both sides. And Canadians are looking at this and saying, well, Overall, religious maybe is not contributing well to Canadian society and that that's not having a good influence. So I think that's one factor that we've seen that has kind of changed over time 
uh, that has kind of come out of this perhaps. Uh, do you think the outcome, whatever way this ends, will have any significant change to any of these numbers? Well, I think it, it, it does will stand to influence it, I think, as it goes forward. It's kind of hard to predict, I think, what, what will happen in the future with, with these mm-hmm. kind of polling numbers. But uh, it certainly does seem like Canadians are kind of paying attention to this, and it does seem to be shaping Canadians' views. So it, it will have an influence. All right, John Rowe with us, Research Associate with Angus Reid. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. Lots of chatter about EVs, hybrids, what have you, uh, in the news quite a bit. And, uh, of course, becoming more and more of an option for Canadian consumers. Let's bring in Lorraine Sommerfeld, columnist for Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator with us now. Lorraine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Hope you're getting ready for the holidays and uh, it's, uh, you know, an even flow for you at this time of the year as opposed well, to hectic today, as hell. <laughs> today is the start of one more thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, there's a column for you. All right. <laughs> so uh, we were talking about this before, hybrids versus EVs. Not that it's ever yeah. one versus the other, but, you know, obviously as we transition right. to a different world. Uh, let's talk about price, for example. I mean, I'm, is there, or even options, uh, one versus the other, hybrid versus an EV. Let's start with price. Are they both around the same or one would one be more? EVs are still more. Um, the hybrid technology has been around longer, so it's more proven. And it is kind of either or because people are now facing a choice of three kinds of vehicles, you know, for drivetrain. And if you're comfortable with EV and you're already there, you're probably already in one. But if yeah. you're looking at this, you're thinking, okay, which of these three? My next vehicle will be a hybrid. Um, I've got a ICE right now. But um, no, I, I think it's fair for people to be a little you know, not know which way to go. And the headlines seem to change every week and you're never sure who's pushing you and who's pulling you. <laughs> you know, it's interesting too. I've, you don't realize that hybrid technology, as you said, is like 25 years old now. Yeah. Priuses. We've been making fun yeah. of Prius for almost three decades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, you know, Toyota has, I think, made a conscious decision to stick with hybrid as opposed to going EV. What do you know about that story? It's interesting, and it's become political because Toyota is massive. It's the biggest producer in the world, and they have they've held back from the EV stuff. And we're watching other people in the EV market, especially startups, getting pulled over the rocks. Well, you know, I think it's um, which one went bankrupt last week? Uh, The one named after. Tesla. What's his first name? Uh, not Musk, but the real Tesla. Right. So we're going to see, you know, Rivian struggling. Everything Rivian putting is putting out there losing 36k a vehicle, I believe, right now. Everyone producing EVs is losing money on them, even though they're priced outside of most of our comfort zones. So that will eventually come together. But again, for consumers, you're thinking, when's eventually and how much is that going to cost me? And that's fair. It's fair to ask that. We've seen headlines about how much batteries cost when they go. It's fair to, you know, wonder about that when you're going into this. So right now, still expensive. It's a great answer for a lot of people. Um, It's it's comfort zone. For anyone that's asking me, it's like, what do you need your car to do for you? Start there. Yeah. You know, figure it out. But there'll be lots more choice coming on the market. Lots more choice coming on the market fast. What are hybrids? What are we learning from hybrids that can help in the EV future? I, th- I think the fact that um, 
I wish people understood that a hybrid goes, and this is Toyota's argument, a hybrid goes a long way to protecting the environment. It does a lot of good. So you don't have to beat people over the head saying, unless you go EV, you hate the world. You know, right. you hate yeah. the environment. Hybrids yeah. are an awesome bridge from here to there. And it is proven tech. And it is goof proof. Like you don't have any anxiety right. about any of it. So I think for a lot of people, including myself, there's a comfort zone there. And it's a good one. And Toyota... I mean, you can get all over everybody for not going all in on EV, but they're also taking it in the chops right now. Everyone that's trying to do it, everyone except Musk. (laughs) And and what about building these things? Because, again, hybrids have been around for 25 years, so obviously we've got that part of it down. What about future builds with building EVs? Are we prepared for that? Well, that that depends on who you ask. Because yeah. we've, you know, we're getting told that it's I mean, EVs will save the car industry. They won't save the planet. And I yeah. think we need to make that distinction. And obviously, that's not politically polite you think, to say. Do you think people are are making that <laughs> distinction? Because Absolutely. we're getting yeah. that crammed down our throats that this is, you know, this will save the planet. What will save the planet is having fewer people driving fewer cars. Yeah. any description that yeah. will save the planet not yeah. taking every ice vehicle off the road and making it an ev we still have congestion i drove to the airport last night at five o'clock hit me now yeah oh, yeah, yeah and, and, if all and those that's, vehicles have been evs it wouldn't have helped yeah that's i think that's a discussion that really we're not having uh are no. we because again no. it's it's it, literally replacing one issue with another, and although one's cleaner, that doesn't solve all of our problems. No, it doesn't. And as far as vulnerable road users, we need to give a damn about pedestrians and cyclists, people that's trying to get around without having to put out all this money for a car. We've never seen vehicles cost so much and to insure as now. And it should be an option that you can live in a place where you don't have to do this. We've had this discussion before. We shouldn't be so car-centric if we don't have to be. And I mean, if you need one, you want one, great. But it shouldn't have to be the only way people can get around. And the electrics are a step. They're also really heavy. And you see that new cyber crap hole, that Mm. truck. Mm. Yeah. And again, okay, I have a longstanding hatred against the dude, but still, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Is this creating conflict within within the auto industry about which way to go? It's creating, um, well, creating money for most of us to write about both sides of the equation. If yeah, we want yeah. To. But I, I think the fact that we don't really know what's going to happen, we don't have a crystal ball, nor yeah. do any of my colleagues, and if they tell you they do, they're lying. So that's difficult. And when you're watching EVs all of a sudden stock up on the lots in the U.S., when you're seeing really aggressive subsidies coming from governments, you have to go, wait a minute, how come I'm paying my neighbor to drive an EV? That's a big stink. So shouldn't we be stopping these subsidies by now is an argument you get to have or a call you get to write. But I I think there's no one great answer. And it's moving so fast. This industry, I've been in it almost 20 years. In the last five years, I've never seen anything gallop along so fast and change. Mm. Just the change. People that bought the original Leaf are going, what? doesn't even look like the stuff I have now. And they thought they were, you know, cutting edge. So there's always going to be questions, and it's how much people's wallets can withstand and also how calm they can 
stay and you probably yeah. notice most people around you are angrier than ever and shorter tempered and you know, I haven't noticed that at all Lorraine I mean, just, <laughs> uh, Lorraine Summerfelt with us columnist with driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator uh, talking about uh, what we're driving next and the transition to Lorraine as always thanks for the time be well have a great holiday you too thanks Scott if Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Super Saturday. Do you know what that is? And how that fits into Cyber Monday, Black Friday, Boxing Day. Poor Boxing Day. Does it even get noticed anymore? Uh, well, Super Saturday is the last Saturday before Christmas. Is this season different from the past now obviously we've just come out or we did a few years ago i don't know when it was my i've still got the fog uh out of a global pandemic and that really changed our habits have they gone back is how does this year look to last to talk more about all of this let's bring in bruce winder retail analyst and author retail before during and after COVID 19 bruce thanks for the time hope you're well yeah i'm doing well scott thanks for having me on so how is this year different from last? Because, um, you know, it, it seems that maybe our habits have changed a bit, whether that has to do with affordability or just where we find ourselves now. Is it much different from this year to last? Yeah, there actually is a pretty big difference or a few differences, actually. Probably the first one is that people are a lot more thrifty this year. You know, this time last year, consumers were still spending, you know, the whole, whole hangover from the pandemic hadn't hit right. yet. People still had some money, you know, the interest rate effect didn't hit and people were spending pretty well last year, in some cases at regular price. This year, people are spending a lot less and they're looking to buy everything on sale. So if it's not on sale, they're not going to buy it this year. And it seemed, and I noticed you mentioned this, that, um, you know, during a pandemic when nobody could really get out and everything was online, there was sort of a rebound in the last year or so as people wanted to get back out and experience the brick and mortar store. Yeah, exactly. That was it. You know what? Everyone got back into brick and mortar uh, last year and everyone kind of forgot about, you know, you talk about boxing, <laughs> they forgot about online for a year. But now online is uh, back with a fury. Uh, people are looking for deals and online is just so easy now. You know, Amazon dropped their economic impact report yesterday and they've, they can serve 4,500 cities in Canada with about 20 million items in one to two uh, days in many cases. So, I mean, it's so easy now to buy whatever you want online. It's almost wondering if it's even worth going to the stores anymore. Uh, how has that changed retail? Uh, because again, last year, everybody welcome back and such and, and what have you. How do you find the balance if you're a retailer? It's a real tough balance. I mean, thank God that all the um, retailers, big and small, uh, got online, if you will, during the pandemic. Yeah. So they're all ready for that now. But you know what? It's been a little tough. Margins are a little tough uh, for all retailers just because consumers are buying a little more on sale. And uh, it's just a little soft from a sales standpoint. So it's not going to be the best year. What are you expecting from Super Saturday? And how does that fit into Black Friday, Cyber Monday and Boxing yeah. Day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super Saturday is right up there. It's one of the top days of the year in terms of consumer spend. And some folks say it's today or tomorrow. Uh, it's really this week, but really Super Saturday, you know, is the last Saturday before the 25th. And usually that's when everyone comes out in droves, especially the folks, you know, who are a little bit last minute. And uh, usually it's one of the best days from a sales standpoint. I don't think this year's going to disappoint either. What about prices? Can you expect deals on a Super Saturday? Because it is last minute. 
Yeah, it's going to be hit or miss. You know, it's going to be hit or miss. Um, certainly some uh, retailers will be marking down merchandise, trying to get people to buy. Some won't. You know, some are going to say, hey, you're a last minute person and you're going to have to pay full pop. But realistically, the consumers are in no mood to pay full price for everything. Having said that, I've heard a bit of feedback that some of the deals on Black Friday weren't as hot as people wanted them to be. So, you know, we're going to have to take a look and see. What about getting out and socializing, restaurants, bars, that sort of thing? Uh, are, are people pulling back there as well? And I noticed an interesting point you mentioned here in your notes that uh, with the tip culture out of control, that is a fascinating <laughs> statement. And, you know, I, I, sometimes I just <laughs> shake my head and I think, am I just really cheap here? But this has gotten out of control, hasn't it? It really has, Scott. You know what? I mean, you know, you go out for a meal. First of all, all the meals are more, way more expensive than they were. In some yeah. cases, like, you know, 30% more. Then you've got our wonderful tax. And then you've got tip culture, which in some cases, you know, many people are looking for 25%, 30% tip. Even for, you know, when you go pick something up, if you're doing all the work, they still want a tip. So, you know what? Consumers are a little frightened about that right now. More consumers are looking just to buy some food at a grocery store, have people over to their house and just try to do it that way. We remember, of course, post-pandemic and how hospitality was hurting and everybody wanted to do as much as they can, where they were, whether they were ordering out or, and then obviously when, when restrictions lifted, going back in and probably had more of an appetite for, no pun intended, for, you know, helping out. But has that worn off or are people saying, all right, enough's enough? Oh, yeah, that's worn off. People are like, okay, you know what? Hey, we can't afford to do this. A lot of people are sour, too, because they're sour at the restaurant saying, hey, you know what? you're pushing more of your employee's salary back on me. And that's not my yeah. job. You know, that's your job as an employer to pay them. So uh, are they going to feel the pinch this year as a result of that? More at home? Yeah, big time. Restaurants are going to feel the pinch big time. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, restaurants as well as retailers, there's going to be a lot of them that go bankrupt in January, February. You know, the ones that are just sort of uh, in the middle there, you know, they don't really have a great value proposition. They're the ones who are going to probably bow out. What about unconventional gifting? And is this less expensive? Uh, can it get more, but something that's unique? Yeah, definitely. You can save some money through unconventional gifting. Things like thrifting. You know, someone called it thriftmas recently. Mm. You know, you can, you can buy all kinds of things that use products, use clothing stores. And used to be a stigma to that. Now the stigma is gone. It's a bit of a badge of honor. People are like, hey, you're saving the environment. You're also helping on the pocketbook. And you're getting me something hard to find and rare. The other thing people are doing is making their own gifts. You, know, you can make some yeah. crafts, make some things that are cheaper as well. All right, Bruce Winder with us talking about Super Saturday. Get ready, a retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Have a happy holiday. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, Canada's controversial support last week of a non-binding United Nations resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza has earned a hearty thank you from Hamas. In an English-language video statement issued earlier this week by Dr. Ghazi Hamad, the senior leader of the Palestinian terror group, praised ceasefire statements from Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, describing them as a step in the right direction. Uh, this also the same man who, after the uh, October 7th attacks uh, by Hamas in Israel, said uh, this will continue until Israel 
is destroyed. So I'm not sure where the ceasefire is coming from. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst and here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. You know, I think, you know, we probably talked to you. The, this is it for the rest of the year. And then something else happens and we ask you to come on the next day. Uh, so I do appreciate you coming on so many times for us over the course of the year. We are greatly appreciated of that. Uh, that's for sure. So how is this thank you resonating around the world or even domestically for the prime minister? Well, first, thank you, Scott. I really enjoy talking to you about uh, these things. Unfortunately, we only ever talk about bad things, so we can maybe change that in 2024. Um, I'm guessing, Scott, that the Prime Minister and the Liberals did not want this Christmas gift under the tree this year, a thank you from Mm. Hamas, which is a listed terrorist entity here in Canada, and which, as you you stated in in your introduction, has called for the destruction of Israel. So I've noticed an awful lot of backtracking by the Liberal Party in the last 24 hours, you know, reminding Canadians that they think Hamas is a terrorist group, that, you know, there's no chance for peace with Hamas in power. But yeah, this doesn't look good, Scott. Um, You know, if I got a, you know, a birthday card from Hamas in in, in the mail, I wouldn't be jumping up and down either. Uh, Does Hamas want a ceasefire? And were they not responsible for breaking the last one? Yes and no. I mean, they want one in the sense that uh, if the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, ease off on their attacks, they can uh, rearm, they can repair some of the tunnels that Israel has destroyed, uh, they can get a respite from the fighting. And let's face it, um, while Hamas will never be destroyed, I'm not confident Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, will ever destroy Hamas, um, any respite in the fighting will allow them to uh, to reman and, and to carry out more terrorist attacks in Israel and abroad. So, you know, I, I think, Scott, we all recognize that something has to be done given the civilian suffering in Gaza. Yeah. yeah. But to me, the bottom line is um, the civilian suffering in, in Gaza would not take place had Hamas not attacked Israel on October the 7th. And that's the, that's where this whole thing came from. Does Hamas want a two-state solution? Well, of course they don't. They want the complete destruction of Israel. They are an Islamist terrorist group that believes that Israel is not a bona fide state, uh, not to mention the fact they're highly anti-Semitic. So, no, Hamas is not going to sit at the table and negotiate a two-state solution, unlike the PLO, which did, you know, back in the 90s, remember the famous Mm. Oslo Accords, uh, were willing to at least talk about the idea. But no, Hamas is not of the opinion that Israel has a right to exist. So why are we constantly preaching a two-state solution that certainly one side has nothing to do with, wants nothing to do with? Well, I I just think it's probably a given in international politics that most people recognize in theory that both the Palestinians and the Israelis deserve a state. The problem is, Scott, uh, there's too little land and there's too much history. And we, we know, of course, that the Israeli government's have sponsored illegal settlements uh, in the West Bank, often by very violent extremist Jewish groups uh, or you know Orthodox Jewish groups. So that's not helping things. Uh, the Palestinians have sponsored groups like Hamas, like the PLO, like the PFLP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, there would be a, a two-state solution, but I, I just don't see the conditions under which we can get there anytime soon. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Phil. So what's wrong with uh, these countries asking for a ceasefire in UN? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with asking for, for this sort of thing? 
There's nothing wrong with it per se, because like I said, you've seen the same image as I have, Scott. There's terrible suffering in Gaza. Civilians are being killed thanks to Hamas's terrorist attack. And I don't think the world's going to stand by and, and allow more civilians to die. Now, the civilians aren't the target of Israel. The target is, is, is Hamas terrorists. But you know as well as I do that, uh, you know, it, when wars start, bad things happen and weapons aren't all that precise all the time. So there's nothing wrong in theory with calling for a ceasefire. The problem is that one of the parties that would sign up for this ceasefire is a terrorist group. And you can't trust them as far as you can throw them. So, yeah, call for a ceasefire, but make sure the partners that are party to it are actually credible from the get-go. Is is Israel being as precise as it can? Oh, you know, I mean, we see smart weaponry over the years. This, that, it's 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 incredibly exact how it's all done. Uh, that being said, when you're putting tunnels under hospitals and using uh, people as human shields, that may be difficult. But are are they taking as much care as they can to make sure the casualties are low? I sure as hell hope so. I I think, yes, they probably are being careful. But the point you just made, Scott, that Hamas deliberately uses hospitals, playgrounds, schools and mosques from which to launch missiles is complicating matters. So if you're the Israeli Defense Forces and you you locate a, a, a Hamas cell, that is firing on you and it happens to come from a school you have you have two choices uh you don't hit the school because it's a school and you don't want civilian casualties uh, or you let hamas keep attacking you and and that that's that's kind of like a, the, the devil's bargain right i don't know where, where you come on that side of the ledger but i think israel is, is, is doing as best as it can but like i said uh war is a complicated thing and, and things go wrong go wrong as soon as war starts uh, how the how great is the extent of the tunnels that are underground? Uh, you know, with the, whether it's hospitals or this, that, or the other that you're that they're discovering. My understanding, and I'm not an Israel-Palestine specialist by any means. Um, my understanding is that they're very, very complex. And you know, Israel last left Gaza in 2005, Scott. That's two decades ago. That's given Hamas two decades to build this infrastructure. So I'm going to go on a limb and say that it's quite complex. Israel apparently is um, dynamiting some. They're, they're putting seawater in others. But I'm guessing that for every tunnel they discover, there's four or five more that are still remaining hidden. And once this conflict is over, by ceasefire or whatever it means, we know that Hamas is just going to rebuild them again because they're a terrorist group. And that's what terrorist groups do. What are the options for Palestinians? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, great question. Not a lot. Um, I just read something this morning that in the West Bank, where Hamas was not a popular group, uh, support for Hamas has tripled, if not quadrupled, since the beginning of hostilities October the 7th. I I don't know. Um, They they certainly can't leave. Um, Lots of people say, well, just go to Jordan. Join your Arab relatives over in Jordan. Jordan doesn't want them. Egypt sure as hell doesn't want them either. They've stopped crossings from the the Rafah border in, in southern Gaza. I don't think the Palestinians have any options but to kind of hunker down and wait for this thing to end. Uh, where do, do you think Israel's having the discussions of what we do with this, you know, this mass assembling of people when this all ends? Where do they go? I sincerely hope so, because if they don't have it now, they're going to have to have it a year from now or two years from now or five years from now. I think the Netanyahu government, uh, look at look at Scott, Israel could not not have replied to the heinous attack on October the 7th. The problem is, is that the the Netanyahu government is extremely far right. It's the most far right government in Israeli history. You've got ministers that are Jewish extremists that advocate the killing of Palestinians. One even advocated nuking Gaza over this particular act of terrorism. So when the government thinks of those types of things, what kinds of 
honest conversations they can they have about ways to move forward. So mm-hmm. it's not just the fact that Hamas is a terrorist group, it's that the Netanyahu government is A, unpopular, uh, Netanyahu has been charged for corruption and all kinds of things, and they're the worst partner you want right now to talk about peace in the aftermath of the war. Phil Gursky with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst. Phil, have a great holiday, unless, of course, we call you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, Scott. Take care. All right. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. We see what's going on uh, with the Israeli-Hamas conflict and, and the destruction and such. The United States and key allies in Arab nations are engaged in high-level diplomacy in hopes of reaching a, uh, a resolution to get desperately needed aid into Gaza. Uh, to bring us up to date on all of this and where it's going, Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News and here now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So, Reggie, we keep hearing about delays and the wording of this, the U.S. not happy with certain wording. Can you break this down for us? Give us a bit of an update. Yeah, for sure. So, look, this this vote was supposed to happen earlier this week, and it was delayed to Tuesday. It was delayed to Wednesday. It was delayed to Thursday. Uh, and here we are now, late Thursday afternoon, possibly hearing that it could be delayed until Friday. But this vote could also take place at some point later in the day on Thursday. And all um, the kind of the, the issue surrounding this this delay is the United States is not, um, you know, happy with some of the wording in this resolution. Originally, it was about calling for a cessation uh, of uh, hostilities, the U.S. feeling that that could, you know, infringe on Israel's right to defend itself by calling for a ceasefire. But there's a second part of this resolution that has to do with getting aid into Gaza, um, and it calls for an independent organization, likely the United Nations, to be the one who's monitoring the aid. The United States says that's not good enough, that Israel has is the one who has the right to be monitoring the aid going into Gaza. And if that wording is left in the resolution, there's a chance the U.S. could veto it unless they've been able to kind of work something out during these closed-door diplomatic sessions that have been held at the UN for the last few days. We remember that there was a, for, for a few days, several days, there was a, uh, a a temporary ceasefire, aid coming in, what have you. What's the difference between this agreement and that? Is Are, are they different in any way? Or are, they, are they basically asking for the same thing? Well, I mean, look, the, the, the other one was a truce uh, and, and a ceasefire and it stopped the fighting. Uh, this is, you know, if, if we don't get or if the resolution doesn't call for a cessation or a suspension or a pause in uh, in hostile activity, uh, then the aid would be trying to get into Gaza at the same time that a live conflict is underway. And the United Nations yeah. has said, look, that poses logistical um, and complex problems uh, and matters. But this is something the United Nations has done before. The question is, will it be? allowed to happen. Israel will push back and say that they're the ones who should be able to control the aid going into Gaza, possibly out of fear uh, uh, of what may be moving across the border. The United States says that is Israel's right. And U.S. officials have said if that resolution passes and and it has to do with the independent aid monitor, um, you know, that could ultimately slow things down further. Are we going to get a ceasefire? That's unclear. We did hear from Hamas on Thursday that there will be no hostage returns. There will be no ceasefire until Israel withdraws fully. So, I mean, both sides are still at polar opposites, uh, you know, in this conflict. And, and it's leaving civilians caught up in the middle. So if if United States and their allies, Arab nations are negotiating something, does that necessarily mean that Hamas is going to buy in? 
Well, I mean, you know, that that's 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 an open question here. I mean, Israel doesn't deal directly with Hamas. The United States doesn't deal directly with Hamas. Everything is mediated um, through Qatar. And we know that there were high level uh, negotiations underway through Thursday to deal with some kind of secondary truce that was between the Egyptian government um, and the, 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 the government in Qatar. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, it, it's unclear if Hamas is going to buy in. You know, it, it works in the, the favor of the Palestinians to get aid into the region to to allow for uh, people to to be able to live another day. There's no food, there's no water. And we've already heard that there's only nine of 36 hospitals that are actively functioning in Gaza. None of them are in the north. And the United Nations is saying that without getting this aid in, crises that are underway, including famine, are only going to get worse. Um, and that's why there's a real push here with this UAE drafted resolution to do something to get aid into Gaza. Uh, where are uh, Palestinians to go at this point? I mean, you know, e- even if aid comes in and such, it-, it seems they're all being corralled into, you know, a certain area. Uh, neighbors willing to take them in. Where where are they to go? I mean, look, neighboring countries are not bringing Palestinians in, uh, you know, possibly under the, the 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 reality that it may be seen as forced displacement. And and it's a real question here. Where are Palestinians to go? We understand the operation is continuing throughout the north, but. Palestinians were told to move south. And over the last several days, we've seen um, an increased uh, bombardment of southern parts of Gaza and and hospitals uh, have come under attack. Churches have come under uh, bombardment as well. So it's growing increasingly more difficult for Palestinians, uh, for civilians to be able to to find safe shelter. Uh, but it's also worth pointing out that Israel says that it's not going to let up. It understands that there is, um, you know, a, a casualty count when there is a conflict. But they say that Hamas is the problem. Hamas is hiding behind civilians. Um, and until they're able to eradicate, quote unquote, Hamas, uh, that this operation is going to continue. The prime minister was out today saying, um, you know, essentially, you know, give up or choose death, Hamas. That is simply what you're waiting for. Uh, and on that, Hamas does not want a two-state solution. So why do we keep trying to sell that? I mean, it, it, it's almost like it's a distraction. Or is sure, that, I mean, ine- is that inevitable? The United States is still pushing for a two-state solution as well. We've heard that from the administration. We've heard that from the National Security Advisor and from the National Security Council. Uh, but it's not just Hamas. Israel has pushed back, or at least the Benjamin Netanyahu and his government have pushed back uh, on the idea of a two-state solution as well. The Israelis also pushing back on on the Palestinian Authority, who control the West Bank, uh, from also having any kind of control over Gaza. So, you know, if a two-state solution isn't going to work, that's why the United States keeps putting the question out there, what happens the day after this war? Who is ultimately yeah. going to be in charge of Gaza? Because if two-state solutions aren't going to work, and the world does not want to see Israel taking control of Gaza, it again is leading to some of those hostilities because there are questions that simply don't have answers. Mm. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Indeed, it's a great season. Good afternoon, Scott. 
you know, there's so much to talk about with you, Christian. I, I don't, I don't know where to start, but let's start with uh, Canada's controversial support of last week's non-binding uh, United Nations resolution calling for the ceasefire in Gaza, and it earning a hearty thank you from Hamas, which he, uh, the uh, senior leader of the Palestinian terror group, praised. Uh, Canada and Australia and New Zealand for this in the right direction. This was also the same person who uh, earlier has said the October 7th attacks would continue on Israel till it was destroyed. How does this go over in the world? Yeah, so uh, look, I think it's, it's, it's inherently challenging, right? So the, uh, um, uh, that uh, Canada finds itself, we have a diverse population, and so the government finds itself in a very difficult spot, kind of trying to appease uh, all electoral groups. But I think the challenge here is that what the politics seems to be driven by in Ottawa is not what are Canada's interests and what is the right thing to do for Canada as a member of the Western Alliance, but rather what's going to maximize the electoral payoff for the government in place. That means mm. the government doesn't want to alienate certain electoral groups that are demographically strong, that tend to come out for constituency members and knock on doors and the like. And so we've seen, unfortunately, uh, the government before making choices that have alienated uh, important partners. Think about India, for instance, the frustration, uh, the government's uh, policies uh, with regards to certain diaspora groups and their views um, on, uh, uh, on certain domestic politics within India. Um, and I think we see this playing out again. And I think this is uh, the sort of uh, politics that uh, uh, can at times be frustrating. I mean, the reason we got together with Australia and New Zealand is to some extent they have similar demographics. They face similar types of uh, challenges. But, you know, strategically, uh, it's it's tough. Israel is, a, is, is the only democracy in the region. It is a uh, country that has long been of strategic interest with it, which Canada has, uh, has, has close relations at the same time. Uh, there's, of course, tremendous human suffering um, and the concern that uh, in the medium term, uh, this might cause significant challenges for instability in terms of further uh, extremism and radicalization. Um, and we see Canada being drawn into the region time and again. Um, you know, think about the recent mission uh, now to the Red Sea in terms of Operation Prosperity Guardian. Uh, so there are very difficult balances for government to strike. Uh, it seems allies are selling a two-state solution, but nobody really appears to be interested in that, are they? No, I think. Look, I'm I'm no expert on Israel and uh, and and the difficulties of the conflict per se, um, uh, and the domestic negotiations around this and so forth. But uh, my sense is that. Again, this is something that's being uh, proffered by the government because it's popular um, in, in, with, with certain electoral constituencies, but it's simply not a proposition that is currently on the table. Um, it's not a proposition that's by any of the parties to the conflict that is seriously being floated. Uh, so I think it's, again, the sort of disconnect between um, what Canada and what, uh, what the minister says and what is actually happening on the ground and what is actually feasible. Um, and so, uh, again, I worry that our foreign policy, like so often, is driven not by Canada's uh, interests and uh, by grand strategy of how Canada might want to shape the world and want to shape how the region, uh, but rather what is expeditious with certain electoral constituencies. All right, let's talk about NORAD. The outgoing chief of NORAD saying that uh, Canada and the U.S. too slow to adapting to security threats. I, I'm guessing you're not surprised by that. And uh, you know, uh, it seems we have another thing on the plate here. 
Yeah, I mean, this is sort of every outgoing commander of NORAD seems to make these statements. And I mean, the statements are um, to some extent directed at U.S. Congress, but overwhelmingly directed at Canada um, as an ally. I mean, we remember the episode uh, last February when Canada had difficulty scrambling fighter jets um, in, uh, in time. Uh, to intercept objects over its own territory. Now, of course, this is why we have an integrated air defense system so that we can come to one another's aid. Uh, um, but uh, look, I mean, chief of the air staff, chief of the Navy have all gone on record of we don't have the equipment, we don't have the people. Um, uh, so uh, I think the, 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 the warning here um, is uh, more stern than ever, and we can see the government playing catch-up on so many different files um, when it ultimately comes to uh, a defense. Uh, and you can see, you know, we're procuring drones this week for $2.5 billion that will be delivered in 2028, and they'll be ready in 2023. Um, so these are very long lead times, and I think the warning here is we need to – the security environment is changing much faster than the government of Canada is adapting in terms of its key policy decisions. Seems like we're playing catch-up on a lot of things. Um, how concerned is this with NORAD and our North considering the aggression of Russia? Aggression of Russia? Yeah, it's not just that we're playing catch-up. It's that the delta, so the gap, continues to grow because of the lag in decision-making. And it seems the only times we make decisions when we literally – urgently need the equipment, then the problem with defense equipment is most of the stuff you can't buy off the shelf, especially now, yeah. because mm -hmm. everybody's trying to get the same sort of equipment. So we have to get aligned with all of our allies and and uh, and with all of our partners. Um, and of course, you know, on the one hand, we announced that we're going to send a brigade strength to Latvia. It's not clear to me where we're getting where we're going to get those people. I mean, when the when the US asked for a contribution by Canada to the uh, uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian in the Red Sea, Canada is sending three officers, three staff yeah. officers. We have no equipment, no naval vessel to send uh, to the uh, to the con to the contribution here. And so, you know, this is clearly you know emboldening um, authoritarians such as Putin in terms of their um, when when they see that countries such as Canada uh, make bold performative statements, but then ultimately have real trouble following through on on the announcements that are made. Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for all of your help over the course of the year. Greatly appreciated. You're a great expert. We love having you on and have a great holiday. My pleasure. Season's greetings and enjoyable holidays to you and the listeners. Canada's 988 hotline is a new service that gives people access to suicide prevention assistance over the phone free of charge. And when you think about it, uh, this is a great idea. And you wonder why it hasn't happened earlier. Let's bring in Dr. Allison Crawford, Chief Medical Officer, 988 Suicide Crisis Helpline, psychiatrist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, the country's largest teaching hospital for mental health, and here now, Dr. Allison Crawford. Allison, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, thanks, Carl. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm hey. great. As soon as as soon as you hear about this, you think, "Wow, what a great idea!" And immediately, it's what took so long. When you think of the success of nine one one, and how there's probably regional lines, uh, you know, throughout the country and such. Um, how long? How, how come it took so long to come up with something like this? It seems like a great idea. Well, I'm glad it is appealing um, to people. Um, people immediately recognize it as a good idea and an, and an important resource. Uh, we did have Talk Suicide Canada for two years prior to this, and, and the work on that 
was really to bring together all of the national and provincial partners, people already deeply engaged in this work in their their communities. And then over the last year, we've uh, worked towards 988 uh, with an even larger group of partners. Um, I I feel pretty good about it. It took us a year. It took them four years in the U.S., but um, the U.S. did launch uh, a year before us. And what is the advantage of one number? I, I mean, I think that's really the what extra um, what's unique about it because we mm-hmm. did already have a national service. But the three-digit number, you know, if someone is in a crisis, we really don't want them being worried about trying to find a ten-digit number or trying to, you know, navigate different numbers because they're different numbers for different services. So nine eight eight. It reduces the barriers to accessing that support when people need it most. So who answers the phone? Who is this designed for? Yeah, so um, we it is a network model. There are um, almost 40 partners in this service, and they're right across the country. Every province and territory is involved. And that really allows suicide prevention efforts to remain really community-focused. And the responders uh, who answer the phones and texts in uh, each of these services, they're, you know, everyday people in their communities. Some are paid, some are volunteers, and, but they're people who are really dedicated to connecting with people when they're, when they're in crisis or struggling. How do you know if you should call? I mean, I think if you, definitely it is a suicide prevention line. We know that lots of people have thoughts about suicide or thoughts about wanting uh, to die. And uh, that, that, that can actually be a very common experience. And definitely this is a resource for anyone who's thinking about suicide or anyone who's worried about someone else. But uh, it's also important to say that it, there's no wrong door. So if you mm-hmm. think you need support, definitely reach out and, and every call will be answered. I guess in a sense, Allison, it's like 911. Like, don't question it. Just do it and then worry about that after. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, that the most important thing is to reach out. People on those lines, on the line, on the text as well, are really trained to, to make that connection um, and to support people in, in securing their own safety. Now, uh, is this is a crisis line for people who are in, in a in a vulnerable situation um, and is the help pretty much directed towards that or is there other help available um, you know from other psychological standpoints um, that's, a, that's a good question again there's no wrong door uh, we do have other services in, in uh, across the country that are more mental health navigation services, meaning if you're looking for an appointment or referral or a resource, uh, you know, for most places in Canada, you can access 211 as a phone number or 211.ca as their website. Uh, But, and we are specifically there for suicide prevention. Um, I I hope I'm I'm not asking a really crazy question, a naive question here, but um, how do you help? What do you say? Is there any insight you can give to the people that answer the phone and do this tremendous work? Yes. Yeah, so first, there's no wrong door and there's no wrong question. Um, but uh, I think, you know, I'll give people a sense of what happened. So if you call or text 988, again, these are trained responders. They 
they want to make a connection. There's no one kind of interaction. You know, they really work to understand where people are coming from, what their unique situation is. They are also trained to assess for suicide safety, to make sure they're are not risks that can be addressed to work with that person's strengths, with their ways of coping, and to work with them. It's a very collaborative, engaged process. Um, and no one call, uh, no two calls look the same. I can imagine. Um, what about numbers or traffic to the line since it started? Uh, definitely. So again, the service already existed as Talk Suicide Canada. So we already had an idea of the, mm-hmm. the volumes. Um, and uh, we are meeting those, the targets that we expected. And we're actually able to answer the phones and texts quite quickly. We're anticipating up to about 700,000 calls and texts uh, per year, but it could be higher. Um, we're, we're really just working as the service develops to to meet the needs and, and right now that is that is happening what are your challenges right now getting this going um actually it's been amazing how much people have engaged in this and really leaned into it to really mitigate any of the challenges that have come up to so all of the partners you know whether they're local regional provincial territorial national partners Everyone has really leaned in, and uh, we fortunately, knock, knock on wood, have uh, the the launch has gone very well. And um, right now, we're trying to understand. I think the biggest thing to understand in the coming months and years is how people are experiencing the line and how we need to be responsive to what to what people need. Um, uh, certain so- times of the year or times of the day where you may have more interest in this line? I mean, obviously, we're coming up to the holidays, uh, higher traffic? I I think we'll, in the crisis line world, yes, around the holidays um, or around like a major uh, community stressful event. So, for example, at the peak of COVID Mm -hmm. um, uh, restrictions, there was more distress. There was more, um, were more calls and texts to the service. But I think it's early to say on 98 in particular. I think we'll have a much better sense when we look back next year um, as, as things settle down into a more uh, regular pattern. What have you learned from this process, Allison? Um, that there is a need out there. Uh, we, and, and it feels like everybody knows that. We, we have a sense from data, from what we're hearing from communities and people, that there is increased distress. We know um, from the data that there are higher rates of depression and anxiety uh, among young people, among older people, there's loneliness. Uh, there are many factors. So we know that we need more resources dedicated to mental health. And this really is just one of, of a number of resources that will be needed. So we're, we're really learning that the need is there. And um, it's very, I think people feel very motivated to try to try to meet that need through this service. Dr. Allison Crawford with us, Chief Medical Officer, 988 Suicide Crisis Helpline, psychiatrist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, Canada's 988 Suicide Prevention Assistance uh, line is now open. Allison, thanks so much for the time. Great work. Good luck. Thanks so much. Happy holidays. The mood is right. Oh, please. Oh, my. 
Tis the season, I, Scott. Oh, I know, but something about this just makes you want to cramp up. Time. You know, and I have a feeling when musicians do this, well, they do it because every year they get a hit out of it. They'll get sales and what have you. But boy, you know, any artist out there, any if you're if you're gonna do a Christmas song and you expect it to just you know be a, a part of, of, of the holiday of Christmas forever. I try to make a good one, because otherwise it's going to come back to haunt you, like that poor one is for uh, Paul McCartney. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. I know that's one of his favorite songs. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, man. You know what? Uh, Paul McCartney is indisputably one of the great musical geniuses of all time. Mm-hmm. He and Not John, there. he and John Lennon, <laughs> and somehow the two of them both put out just the most annoying Christmas songs. I mean, I just, I don't know wh- what went wrong with Paul McCartney that day. I don't know if he like fell and hit his head and then decided to write it or whatever. But wow, how how well, can we have so many done. great Beatles songs and then that? It's, you know, they're usually done in like July, you know, June, July. And so, you know, maybe it's just something that, you know, he, uh, he, he threw down in a, in a little uh, amount of time and and it stuck and the record company wanted it and the rest is history, as they say. Although, okay. So that one can't stand, um, the Paul, John Lennon, not a big fan. Although I, I would say, and I, I, you may agree, you may disagree. The weirdest Christmas, and there's a lot of weird Christmas songs. In fact, Jen McQueen. Um, yes, was sending, she started this. She started this on the show yesterday by sending us stuff. It was okay. There's this. I don't even know what this song is called, and I don't have Facebook up right now. We it's, played it yesterday. Okay, yeah. it's horrendous. But anyway, but still, the weirdest. She put it on social media too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where I that's where I first saw it. So th- there are weird Christmas songs, as I say, and I mean, I, I should, I don't even know if we're allowed to play this one. I'm uh, Tom, don't play this. We All played right. it yesterday. No, no. There's another one I was going to mention. Oh, okay. Well, I got to hear this one. That is Tiny Tim. Do you know the t- song that Tiny Tim put out for Christmas years ago? No, I just remember the Tulip song. Oh, no, no. This was the, the, t- the Tulip song is a dream compared to the, somehow <laughs> back in, I don't know what year, Tiny Tim put out a song. Hold on. I got to pull this up. What year? Um, his song, his song from 1980 was Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. Oh no. Oh, I think you told me about this. My. It's like, what, wait a second. How is that? A, and it got released. Like who was the person who at a record company said, yeah, we got to record that and put it out that we got to do, we got to do that one. <laughs> oh, but, but I mean, but was s- it a hit? No, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> But still, the weirdest song. Do you song, remember it? No, the weirdest <laughs> song, I think, that has to be the, the weirdest Christmas song of all. And maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. How did David Bowie end up singing with Bing, oh, with Crosby? Bing Crosby? Yeah, I remember seeing that on a, it was on a TV show. Yeah. I think it was a Christmas, it was Bing's Christmas special and Bowie was on it because he was probably the, you know, hit guy of the day. How did that how, I know, but how does Bing Crosby end up with David? You, I can't think of two people who would be more different in their life. Okay, so I'm uh, speaking of weird things um, and and singing. Yoko Ono. Well, if you call that singing, well, noise you know, making. 
There's a, a oh, we're running out of time here. There's a show that uh, ran, I think it was on the BBC, and it was uh, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, and it never aired. Oh. Because it was so bad. It was so bad, uh-huh. it never aired. And then I saw it on, like, PBS recently and what have you. And there's John Lennon, and he's with an incredible band. This is after the breakup of the Beatles, or about that time. Um, he's he's with this incredible band, uh, some of the people from Cream and whatever. It was just, and they were doing this just great blues song and it was unbelievable and then all of a sudden yoko just kind of walks onto the set and and she brings she brings a violinist with her and she just stands him in front of the microphone and he just starts rocking the violin as if it was a lead guitar and it's like well okay this is unusual. Uh-huh. And while the rest of the band's playing, she's just kind of walking around in front of them. And then she pushes the violin player out of the way and just starts screaming. Yes, yes. And I'm watching the other members of the band, and they're not even batting an eye. They're like, oh, yeah, this is good. <laughs> Unlike, you know, there's a shot of think, Chuck Berry, uh, you know, in one appearance where he's just shaking his head. He's playing with John Lennon. Did that band ever play together go. again, Scott? I'm not aware of it, and you know what that thing so didn't that means air for like Ono, years. That means Yoko Ono broke up another band. <laughs> That's two that she broke up. Nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other just... one, the other one, Scott, that I would encourage people to watch. Not tonight because you know they got to stick around for my show. But you know this weekend, tonight, later, whatever else, look up on YouTube the 1978 Star Wars Holiday Special. And I don't know if George Lucas had anything to do with this, but if it, if he did, this is when George Lucas met Timothy Leary and was experimenting (laughs) with LSD and acid. This is the strangest, most horrendous idea anyone ever had for Christmas. I can't even, it's impossible to even explain what it was about. There were Star Wars characters and there was singing and... Stuff. Well, Trump Star Wars was too much. big at that time. It was People huge. Have blocked that out of their memories for a reason. It was huge. <laughs> Star Wars was huge at that time. This though was clearly there were hallucinogenics involved. There had to be. This is the strangest thing you will ever see that anyone ever did for Christmas. R two D two even had like a Christmas ball at that. You know, like you get an R two D two for your tree. Yes. Well, he sang in this <laughs> along with C three PO. It was, and, and there was a, there was even a Chewbacca sing along. I'm not making this up. His family was there. The whole Chewy family was involved. More uh, Chewy stuff coming up (laughs) after the six o'clock news with Scott Radley. Scott, thank you so much for the time as always. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This from history teacher Mr. Lowe. Rather than tearing down statues, renaming streets, downtown squares, and schools, that, to be honest, many students have a hard time pronouncing. Let's do this. Teach history properly, offering two views of the historical figure. Let an educated public make their choice. We have swung the pendulum far too left to political correctness, denying the proper teaching of history. Mr. Lowe, keep right except to pass. 